You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Well, hello, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. For the listeners that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and why are we talking today? What's going on hot? First off, thanks for having me. Uh, I am Mike Bollinger, the Senior Vice President, Head of Pharmacy Lending at Live Oak Bank. Uh, Live Oak specializes in niche markets for small business lending, trying to be the best bank for small businesses in America. Um, We are dedicated to the doers. And as part of that, with regards to pharmacy specifically, uh, we mainly focus on acquisition financing to help people buy and sell pharmacies throughout the country and any other pharmacy needs that they may have. When I think of Live Oak, I know that you have other relationships out there, but I'm thinking like this would be like, uh, what's that show, The Bachelorette or something on TV where I think that I'm the only one because I just hear Live Oak talking to pharmacies. How many other specialties do you have outside of pharmacy? Uh, So Live Oak itself has about 30 different what we call verticals. We're a younger bank in that we started in 2008 which is a great time to start a bank during a financial crisis. We had a couple guys that really understood banking uh, really well. They also thought that the banking system might be a little bit broken. And so they they decided to come up with a new model that is really a genius model if you think about it. And now looking back 12 years, I mean, to expand from one vertical to now 30 um, and bringing this model to to the market, uh, it's really proven itself out. And so We were known as the doggy bank back then because we only did veterinary loans. We would bring in somebody that totally knew the vet space backwards, forwards, inside out. And who better to loan to those people than, you know, people that actually knew what that business looked like. And so bring in the banking experience on top of knowing the vet practices that you're going to loan money to. Then that makes for a really good loan. And it gives you a better chance of success, not only at the borrower level, but also bank level. Yeah. And so the second vertical that we went into was dentistry. And then in 2010, we got into pharmacy. And so what's neat about that is at the time we brought in a guy that that was actually a pharmacist. He had owned, bought and sold a couple independents, actually more than a couple independents. And uh, so he brought that expertise into the, into the model. And then they matched him up with a banker, like an historical banker, um, and then the two of them, you know, just went to the market and said, OK, how can we help pharmacies get into the into the space? So um, keep keep that going. Then, you you know, you start going into, you know, ins- insurance uh, agents, uh, investment advisors, yeah. uh, education. Um, you know, so wine and craft beverage, self-storage. We're, we're in all these different metrics uh, or markets now. Um, and the model has stayed the same where we bring in subject matter experts. And then we use that expertise to build a really good portfolio. And then ultimately, it makes for a better loan, not only for the but for the borrower. So my background is more pharmacy than it is banking. Um, I started a, working at an independent when I was 15. And here I am, you know, 43. So 
I don't know the math on that, but I think it's 80 years in, in pharmacy years. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of all I know. That's really cool. Yeah, because it does make for a better relationship because there's not surprises later from the pharmacy like those guys didn't understand this. And then you guys have a safer loan because you already know what things are, what the DIR fees and all the stuff that goes on. You're not going to get surprised later by sitting in a breakfast three years later talking about someone's loan they want to renew and they're finally finding out like what DIR fees are. That's absolutely correct. When you match up the experience with a a lending situation, it it really it, it really makes for a great outcome. Um, and what's proven that out is that we've done pharmacy loans now for ten almost eleven years. Um, we've done about a thousand loans, um, and it's a it's over a billion dollars lent to just pharmacies in that time frame. Um, our defaults are extremely low, and I think a couple of reasons for that. One, the expertise on the front end, the time that we're spending with you is not so much you you know telling me why I should loan to a pharmacy. There's a lot of reasons that you would not want to. But if you know what you're looking at, to your point, DIR fees, um, the receivables, at the cycles of how they pay their wholesaler and all those different things, while we're doing our due diligence, we're looking for things that are really going to trip someone up down the road. Whereas if you don't know those things and you're just looking at it for face value, then you really don't know what you're getting into. Um, so a lot of the due diligence that we're working towards is honestly looking at prescription counts. We look at controlled substance reports. We look at where you're located. That can alter, you know, whether or not you're successful. So we put all that in place. So that's the front end side. This, the back end is something that's very unique to the market in that Live Oak has dedicated relationship managers. And their sole goal is to be a partner with you along the way until your loan is paid off in full. And what they do is every three months, six months, nine months, a year, they're getting your financials. For pharmacy customers, we get their script counts. And what we're looking for is not to be a big brother, but it's really to be an ally with you that says, if you're running off the tracks, you may be so ingrained in the business, you might not see some things, whereas we might see something ahead of time. And then we're not afraid to go in and say, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and figure it out. So they may bring, bring in me. Um, and then I start looking at the stores and, or maybe talking with the, the owner to figure out what's going on, where's some weak links. Um, we may bring in consultants. We may bring in, you know, whatever it may be. We may build a website for you if that's what it takes. At the end of the day, we're bringing that to you as the borrower with the one goal of not letting you default. And, and what we need to do to get you there, we'll, we'll roll up our sleeves and, and take you there. So knowing the experience on the front end, then matching that with not just leaving you alone once we do the loan, that's really the beginning is once we do the loan and staying with you all the way through. Um, those two things married together make for a really, really good experience for the borrowers. And if you're a first time owner with no experience, what a tremendous asset to have the bank sitting there on your behalf, making sure that you're following the right path. And if you do fall off for whatever reason, which it's going to happen from time to time, uh, you have a resource to call and, and we we give that to our folks. What usually is going to stand in the way of everything looking good to everybody, but you know something's not going to work? What typically is that, that nobody's seeing except you guys and you say, sorry, this isn't going to go? Uh, well, from a personal standpoint, um, a lot of times it's personal credit. Um, that's That's typically what you'll find. I would say from a store perspective, we look for concentration risk. We look for anything that we think might not be sustainable going forward. 
And, and if we can't get something to add up, we'll ask and ask and ask until we get an answer. But um, sometimes the things that people provide just don't add up or it's yeah the numbers it's don't something match. that we just can't quite put our finger on. You got to tread with those and just figure out like, is this something we just, you know, take a chance on or do we not? What does that term mean? Concentration risk. Quickest example I could give you is if you're doing a long-term care acquisition and let's say 80% of the business is made up of one facility. If what happened to that facility, then you've got a loan based on a million dollars, but then now you're at 200,000, you're ability to pay back the loan. So, you know, there, there's other things. Uh, it could be PBM mix. It could be, you know, controlled substances. It could be anything. What is the mix of the customer? Gotcha. Or not the customer, but the, the customer of your customer. Uh, right. Yeah. Of the business that they're looking to acquire or the business that they currently own. Yeah. So we're, we're just looking to see is, is there anything, is there anything in the business that we can foresee that would be prohibitive to, to go forward and, and pay back the loan? And if there's anything like that, then we try to draw that, you know, draw that out and then do some homework on it and make sure that we understand fully what is the risk and is there mitigants to that risk? Or is it just something that we say, okay, we know it. And do we, you know, try to burden the deal a different way to make sure that it can cash flow if it was to lose that business? Um, we actually did a deal um, a year and a half ago. They had a large chunk of their business was one type of business. And we thought it could go away at any moment. And sure enough, it did. Yeah. Um, but we modeled it in such a way that the, when, it went, when it went away, he was still protected because we we did some things with the cash flow and made sure that it all worked uh, without that business. So that gave us some comfort to say, yeah, it's not the best case scenario, but if it was to happen, would you need to do this and this and this, which was, you know, maybe get, unfortunately have to get rid of an employee or do whatever. He made those commitments to us and, and about seven months into his ownership, that business went away. He did weather it and it came out okay, but it's because we did the extra homework on the front end. Yeah, it's good to talk about that stuff ahead of time too, because a lot of times people don't, but then they know what's coming. Is there a way, do you guys usually do a yes or no for someone who it's not going to work? Or do you ever bring stuff down so much where you don't have to say no? It's like, okay, you don't trust somebody. It's like, We'll loan you 20 bucks or at some point you say no. We absolutely say no. Um, we have to. Um, but what I usually tell people is if we're telling you no, it's not because we just want to be mean to you. It's because there's some legitimate reason, something that we have seen either in the business model or the way it's structured or whatever, whatever the reasoning is. Um, we want to just tell you that up front, because if if I put myself in your shoes and you're going to loan me a million, you know, million five or whatever the number is, I'm responsible to pay back a million five. And, and if you see something, I want you to tell me about it. Um, and so usually, usually when we say no, it's, it's, there's a real reason as to why. Um, and, and some people heed that advice. Other people go somewhere else and try to get, you know, get it done somewhere else. Well, it's like the whole housing market. People should have been told no more often, right? I mean, that would have solved a lot of stuff from 15 years ago or whatever. Yeah. And in, and in business, I mean, business is tough already, you know, on its own merit, you know, you, you, you add things to it that could really, you know, impact the business. And, you know, I'm a big fan. My personal mantra is I, I don't like surprises. 
not even surprise birthday parties. So don't throw me one of those. I'll make note <laughs> of that. I, uh, I really <laughs> just don't like surprises. So the last thing I want to do is surprise you with anything when you're buying a business. Um, because one, you're going to spend a lot of time and energy. We're going to spend a, t- a lot of time and energy. And if we know it on the front end, we're just going to be like, look, this is what we see. Here's some things we think we can mitigate those things, or here's some things that we just cannot get comfortable with. And here's why. And then it's, it's up to the, it's up to them at that point. If something gets lost, both sides lose. It's not like you're walking away from a sale and you're, you're in a relationship with somebody. Mike, what are some things that looked good in 2014? I know right now you focus a lot on acquisitions, but what are some things that looked good in 2014 that don't look so good now? What areas did you invest in pharmacy, you know, loans and so on back six years ago that wouldn't be as fruitful now for either side? That's a really good question. Um, the there's, there's, there's an unpopular uh, thing, but we really have to be strategic in startups. Your, your traditional startup, um, we, we have really shied away from that over the last few years. Um, and when I say a startup, that, that's you've never owned anything before. You find a building or, or you know, a, a parking lot somewhere and you're like, oh, that'd be a great spot for a pharmacy. Um, but what you find in that a lot of times is, is people, the location picks them. They don't pick the location. And, and a lot of, you know, when you're doing a startup, you really, there's a lot of barriers to entry. Um, they can be overcome, but they, you really have to be dedicated. You have to be prepared to not have a salary. You need to have a good marketing plan to get yeah. people in your door. Um, and, you know, that's a tough thing, um, especially in today's world. So we, we stay away from those. Um, and, and I would say the other thing is, is refinancing. Um, we're, we're very cautious with refinancing debt um, in pharmacies. If it was bad over the last few years, the next few m- might be better, but there's a good chance it's going to look worse. What did you mean by the uh, location chooses you, that a location is going to be a good one? You're not going to make a good location? You got to put a pharmacy where people will come, Right. There's a giant change of behavior that has to happen for you to go from, you know, Mike's pharmacy to Mike's pharmacy. Um, and, and so if you don't do the homework and know what prescribers are in that market and know how many pharmacies are in that market, how many scripts are being filled in that market, if you don't do all that homework and then say, because of that homework, I'm going to put a pharmacy here because of true data due diligence or at least homework and background, a lot of people tend, and, and this is a generalization, I get that, but it, it, does, it does happen a lot, unfortunately. People will just see a building somewhere for sale and, and then they'll go do it. And, and, you know, that's why I said the building, the location picked them. They didn't necessarily pick the location. Um, and, and that's what I mean is, is doing your homework, knowing that there's a high dense population population of, you know, people that have prescriptions or how many scripts are being filled or whatever that, whatever those metrics are f- for your specific deal. Um, just not finding something because it's for sale. That That's all. And I've always said, like when people say, Hey, we should do this. It's like, all right, but you have to realize that the population is already being serviced with that product. It's not like People are saying, I don't know where to fill a prescription. Oh, there's a pharmacy. Now I can fill a prescription. They might not like 
the pharmacy they go to, or they might want to change, but wanting to and not liking is different than not having it at all. No, you're you're dead on because the number one question is where am I going to get prescriptions, and and if you can't answer that, or a lot of times, quite honestly, the answer that we get is, well, I'm just gonna you know just crush them with customer service, but you skip the step. You have to get the person in the door to give them the customer service. And if you can't get them to change their behavior from the other pharmacy that they're going to, then you're going to not be able to give them the service that you really want to provide. And and I, I fully believe you would do that with customer service, but you have to get them in the door. And the change of behavior for prescriptions is is a really hard thing to do sometimes. And so it's, it's an uphill battle. Um, but some people that do it strategically maybe look at a backfill, which is we call a backfill, but you know maybe a, an independent sold to a chain, and that town is no longer with an independent to service them the way they would want, or um, you know somebody sells out their files to somebody else or something like that. Um, you know, so some of those will work, um, and they, those turn out to be really good actually if you can do it right. Um, but but again, and then. Then you also have the PBMs to deal with. You have the licensing components, and there's a lot of barriers to entry, unfortunately. About the only place, and I ain't no banker, of course, about the only place that I could picture new customers and, and a new pharmacy popping up without the backfill you were talking about and so on would be like in Arizona or somewhere where all of a sudden there's like this new like miles of development, you know, because they opened up a new highway or something like that. Are those times or is that still problematic? If you really feel that you can get prescriptions uh, and and do it really well, I mean, because they, this is an anecdotal number. I think it, it could really depend on your situation because it's all over the board now. But, you know, it, it used to be estimated 80 scripts a day used to be break even. Well, now it's, now it's closer to a hundred. Um, because the margins have shrunk, right? And so if you can't, if you can't honestly know that you're gonna get to 150, 200 a day, um, you know, you that's a challenge. And then you, the other thing is what kind of scripts are being filled? Cause you can have all the population you want, but if they're all getting $4 generics or, you know, a bunch of maintenance meds, you're not gonna really make a living. Um, and so there's a lot that goes into that um, than just, the location's important, you gotta have it, but then you need to know what's the scripts being written, you know, what types of doctors are around, where are the people going today? I don't know if it's a geographical thing as much as it's answering those questions to then set yourself up for the best success. What would it look like if someone said, we're doing great, you know, we're in a hundred year old building on Main Street, a new thing opened up across the street, we wanna put up a new double-sized building. What kind of risk or customers are those nowadays? Is that something that would interest you guys? Or I know there's a ton of problems I don't see. So what are the problems and stuff with that? When we say startups, the way we've been talking, um, we're talking about the you know no ownership experience, you know first time owner kind of people. Um, we we do look at expansions, and expansions would be you own a pharmacy or two or three, and you want to go start up a fifth or sixth. We could look at those. Um, because we have track record with you as an owner, we can we can leverage and and cross collateralize your existing stores, um, and that's a difference to us. Like startup versus expansion startup, those are two different things to us. Um, 
or, and, and I don't know if this is where you're going with your question, but you know, if, if you wanted to expand and, and build a bigger location or move down the street, something to that effect. Yeah, we, we do all of those kind of things. You have some solid numbers you can go off of. You just don't have hopes and dreams behind that. Yeah, because projections are just that. They're projections. And, you know, I've never seen projections be 100% right because it's, it's impossible. You'll never know what you can grow. You can grow too fast. You can grow too slow and both have the same result in your cash flow. You could run out of cash, just it takes you longer to run out of cash or you run out of cash quicker. <laughs> so um, it's it's so, you know, modeling out projections is a hard thing. And when you use the SBA product, which is what we primarily use for pharmacy, although some of the multi-store owners may get, you know, a non, non-SBA loan, um, it's cash flow lending. And, and you don't have that tangible asset that you're tying to. So it makes a, for a great avenue for pharmacy. But it really relies on that cash flow to be sufficient to support the debt and all the other expenses that are out there. All right. I kind of followed this whole conversation until then. What does that mean, SBA versus the other one? And how does that change stuff? Is it because you don't have the collateral? Where were you going with that? So dumb that down for me. Yep. So SBA is Small Business Administration. Um, they have an SBA 7A product, which is primarily what you'll see in the pharmacy space. Um, okay. And then you have what would be considered more of a commercial or non-SBA um, type of okay. loan. Uh, the main difference is uh, a, an SBA loan is a really great product for pharmacy because it does not rely on a tangible asset. You can actually use the cash flow of the business to make the determination. The difference of a tangible asset would be like a huge machine you have or something? Real estate would be your primary thing. So if you if you went to a non-SBA lender, the first question they may ask you is how much real estate is part of this deal? And then they know that they can collateralize the deal with that piece of real estate. With an SBA loan or a cash flow loan, what you're going to be looking at is the cash flow of the pharmacy itself has to support the debt service that is going to be incurred. And that's a big distinction. The current cash flow has to do that where with the other kind of loan, you might say, well, we don't have any cash flow yet. We're starting with this collateral, but we're going to get there. But you have the collateral if you don't need it. So the current cash flow is like what you have to go on. Right. So we're looking at historical cash flow and saying, based on the historical performance, we believe that the loan could be paid back because it's performed this way for the last three years or three and a half years, whatever it is. You're using historical data to kind of predict if the store can support it going forward. For pharmacy, it works out really well because a lot of pharmacies don't actually own their buildings, believe it or not. And a lot of, if you think about the largest asset of the pharmacy is the prescription file. So as a bank, you can't come in and take that from you because of all sorts of regulations. Um, Your second largest is inventory, which as the bank, I I can't do anything with your inventory because that's going to go to the wholesaler. Um, so your two largest assets are things that I can't even come after. So, so that's where, you know, using cash flow to make the decision is it works out really well for pharmacies. Do you ever have to go to a trade show? Unfortunately, no. Yes. Those must <laughs> suck. Don't swear or anything so that we have to cut this out, but do those suck? Trade shows are a, a necessary evil in a way. We do a bunch a year. Again, it kind of follows our mantra, though. Like we we want to be face to face with people. Yeah, of like course. We want to physically meet you. We want to physically in, engage in dialogue and right. I, I'm big on making you know relationship or building relationships with people. Sure. Um, you know, trade shows are, are great for that. Um, now it does keep me on the road quite a bit more. 
Um, like with the big wholesalers, their three are always in, you know, July for the most part. This year they would have been literally three weeks, one back to back to back, three weeks in a row. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wouldn't see my family for, for almost a month, but it's uh but it's good to see, you know, the people that work at those wholesalers and it's good to see the customers that go there. Um, it's also fun to see our existing customers who walk up and be like, Hey, thank you so much. We wouldn't be here without you guys. And so it it's it's necessary. Um, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, we like them because it does help us, you know, build the brand awareness and, and get out to people that may not have found us otherwise. As far as your job goes, what's the favorite 10% of time, the favorite four or five hours a week, let's say? One of the things that I absolutely love, and uh, I'm biased on this clearly because we do it, um, and I feel we do it the best, is structuring the deals. Um, there is a lot of ways to structure a deal, you know, the best that it can be for both the borrower and if there's a seller involved on an acquisition, we want to make sure that it hits their objectives as well. And so for me, knowing the business like we know it and being able to use the rules that are provided by the SBA and all the different things to us. Um, kind of like you're an artist, like almost painting. You can decide what to pick from and... It is a it is art. There's art and science. And uh, I have a whiteboard in my office. And uh, there's some times that we will literally just scratch on it for hours just to figure it out. Um, there was a deal we did about three years ago. Um, we literally structured it 18 different ways until we figured out it was the most advantageous for all parties to go this route. And then we presented that to the buyer and the seller. And they both said, oh, that, that sounds really great for us. You know, so so that's really exciting to me. I like getting into the, the weeds of the deal. And, and you know, from that standpoint, that involves me working with my team. Um, and, and I thoroughly enjoy managing my team. Um, so I think that's the second half of that question is just working with my direct reports and my extended family team that, you know, underwriters, closers, whoever it may be, credit. That's that's honestly the what I what I enjoy the most. At my pharmacy, now I have banker hours because I used to have the hours till late night and stuff. And I got to a certain age, I said, screw it. When I think of banker hours, though, are there times, though, where you're getting like, where they're not banker hours, where you're getting like a late night nervous phone call from someone because the business seller demanded this or so on? Or is pretty much a lot of stuff like, the next day is the next day and, and we'll handle it. We're pretty much on 24 seven. You know, I mentioned earlier, we're dedicated to the doers and that we want to treat everybody, everybody as if our, they're our only customer. And, yeah. and the only way for you to really accomplish that is to answer the phone every time they ring. If they call you in a day and you can't get to them, at least send them something back saying, hey, I got your message, whatever. Sure. Uh, we sure. live by a sundown rule that we want to make sure we follow up with everybody that same day. I was doing phone calls and emails yesterday and you know, on Sunday. Part of the process that we've employed here is just really we want to make sure that we take care of the customer. And, and that means sometimes being on call for them. There's also some confidentiality with some of these deals and they don't want to talk in the store so they want to talk after hours or we're very sensitive to all of those things or people start worrying when you know late at night when they're not so busy that you're almost like a psychiatrist for them if you were a pharmacist and you knew that a year from now you were going to come for a loan let's say no let's say an expand let's say you're going to go from four to five stores or something like that you know expand that way what are a few things that 
you'd be doing now a year out if you were a pharmacist? You know, whether it's books or making phone calls or whatever, what would you be doing? Obviously, preparation is key. Um, so if, if you're going to give yourself that year window of time, um, the some of the easier things would just be, you know, obviously keep your credit score up. Don't miss any payments in that regard. But then if you have other businesses that you're going to leverage or at least show that, hey, I have a track record, just make sure that you're managing those in, in the right way. And then you need cash on hand. So cash is one of the biggest things that a lot of pharmacists, a lot of new pharmacist owners don't have cash as, enough to bring up the down payment or whatever. Those rules can change a little bit when you own an existing pharmacy and you're going to buy a second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever. Try to figure out, first off, what kind of business do I want to buy in a year? Do I want a traditional retail? Do I want long-term care? Do I want specialty compounding? Do I want a large front end, small front end? What kind of town do I want? Do I want, you know, metro, you know, downtown or do I want rural? So a lot of that stuff is just more fundamental questions about what you want as an owner. Um, and then just start doing your research into that. From from there, knowing what you want to buy, I would make sure that your own house is in order. Because if, you, if you're not doing well in your current environment, in your current stores, then you know you might have to fix that before you go do an expansion. Uh, and, and so just keeping your existing store in the optimal position possible, either from revenue trends or script counts, just profit in general. So I think just really preparing yourself to, to really take the step. And then once you find the opportunity, then you're fully ready to go. The other factor is if you're going from one to two, that might be a harder jump than going from four to five. And so knowing that, leaning into some mentors or some folks that have done that jump and saying, what what happened? What, what were the things that caught you off guard? What was the things you would have done differently? So the other thing is just rely on all your resources. Um, there, there's so many resources in this industry now that weren't there even five, six years ago. Um, you've got pharmacy-specific CPAs now. You've got pharmacy-specific lawyers and attorneys. You've got pharmacy-specific banks like Live Oak. And you've got wholesalers that have tremendous resources. You've got GPOs. I mean, there's all these, you have buying groups, you have all these different resources that you didn't have a few years ago. And they all bring something to the table. So tap into all those different things. How early would be too early for someone to reach out to you? Let's say they've got three stores now, they want to double that in five years. How early should they be reaching out to you to say hello? Or I, I mean, for me, I would say it's never too early because you, you might learn something, you know, with based on your specific situation that you may not have known. And then we could say, oh, well, because of this, you might want to do this, this and this first. Or um, actually, based on this, we could do X, Y, Z, and then it might change the of something. I would say it's never too early. So your CEO comes in and says, Mike, we're going to send you on a year sabbatical, but it's not going to be like traveling with your family. You ha- you still have to do something nine to five for the whole year, but it can't be banking, can't be pharmacy. What would you do? I would produce music. <laughs> produce music? Yeah, I'm a big music guy. When I was 16, I went to my parents and asked them for a loan to buy some DJ equipment. I paid them back all $600 with interest. I was a DJ for many, many years until I started working full time. But the one thing that if I could ever do anything, I would I would love to produce music. And when you say produce, you would produce for an artist or would you play some of the stuff yourself? 
no, I have no musical talents whatsoever. <laughs> so that's why I was a DJ. I could play somebody else's music. But no, I'm saying like produce like in the booth. Mixing and that kind of stuff. Do you still dabble in that then as, as a hobby? Do you still do some things or not? Only recreational. <laughs> so like whenever we get together in a group of friends, they always nominate me to, to DJ the party or something. But uh, but we, we had a town hall with all the Live Oak employees the other day and, and they you know, my, the president asked me to pick a couple songs for the intro and outro. So, was, you know, some of those things, but I sold my equipment. Did you have a scratch table? I uh, did at one point. I had it all, um, but I, I ended up selling all my equipment at a very, very, very deep discount to a church group, a young youth church group that needed some equipment. So that's ever since then, I just never got back into it. But I bet those were some late nights. It, it did. But at the time I was single and, uh, you know, going to college and I was working at a pharmacy full time, going to school full time and then DJing on the side. So it was, uh, you know, it's quite, quite the time, but uh, I loved every minute of it. Do you guys have a music vertical? It sounds like you might want to go over there once in a while. You might need to start one, but we don't have one yet. That's number 31. <laughs> it will be 31. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks again. Yep. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.